Amen. In our Bibles, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And I want to read from verse 8 right through to verse 14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Reading, of course, as we always emphasize, and it's important that we do, from the authorized version. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Let's hear the word of God. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, kneeling it to his cross. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, for a few minutes, I want to speak to the young people and the boys and girls who are present. I'm going to start a new series today that I've entitled The Gospel in the Farmyard. And let me just add that if you have some ideas or some illustrations relating to a farmyard that bring out a gospel truth, then share that with me, please. But for this morning, I want to think of this verse of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, I want us to think of the words, Christ is made unto us righteousness. This is the lambing season. The spring of the year is always associated with the lambing season. And look at this lovely yo that I have with me today. All right. We'll not say whose this is, but isn't this a lovely yo? Will you sit there? Well, we call it Dolly. It maybe sit better this way. All right. Now, you see, young people, boys and girls, in the lambing season, the yews give birth to their young. And sadly, some little lambs die in the birthing process. Some are born dead, some die shortly afterwards. But also, some mothers die in the birthing process 
can die in the field or can die in the shed. And I want you to think of a mother you that has died. And we'll say she's given birth for the sake of argument to two little lambs. And the little lambs are hungry and they're lonely and they're unprotected. Now, how does a farmer get a ewe with no lambs, whose lambs have died, to take on the lambs of a dead ewe? You see, it's not easy. And I've discovered this from talking to uh, William Pentland and others, that each ewe knows its own little lamb, knows by smell, knows by sound, and knows by sight. And a, a mother ewe knows to have nothing to do with a strange lamb. A mother ewe will reject other lambs if the shepherd just introduced that lamb to the ewe. You see, each ewe knows its own. Now, once you have found, we'll say, a, a foster ewe for the orphaned lambs, that's what they're called, a foster ewe for orphaned lambs, the shepherd or the farmer has the job of grafting the lambs to the ewe. And sometimes these little lambs, young people, are called alien lambs or orphan lambs. That would be a better way to put it. And you see, today there's different forms of grafting. There's a thing called slime grafting, and there's wet grafting, and there's even others. I think there's about six in total. But we're just going to think of one. And we're going back to olden times. And it was called skin grafting. What the shepherd would have done, he took the dead lamb. And he took it into his shed and he would have skinned that dead lamb. And he would have took the lamb's pelt or the lamb's coat and he would have tied it on to a living lamb. And then he would have brought the living lamb to the ewe. And of course, for 24 or 48 hours, that skin of the dead lamb would have been on the living lamb, having been introduced to the mother ewe. And through the smell of the pelt, the foster ewe would have taken to the orphan lamb. And the new alien lamb then, forever then, was by the side of its mother. And it was happy and content. And the mother was happy and content. And she cared for this alien lamb. And she would have nourished it. And that's what I want us to think about. The gospel in the farmyard, because you see, there's loads of gospel illustrations to do with the farmyard. And the mother lamb taking on an orphan alien lamb, and here's how they did it in years gone by. They grafted the skin on for a time. And I was thinking, you know, you and I are like the little lamb. Because the Bible talks about being dead in sin. And trespasses. And how can we who are sinners, guilty, hell-deserving sinners, how can we be accepted by God? God can't receive us as we are because we're sinners and because God is, remember, holy. And what do we need? Well, we need to be cleansed from our sin, but it's not just enough to be cleansed from our sin. We need a new covering to be accepted and be reconciled in a right relationship with God. And that covering is provided in Jesus Christ. Because Christ has made unto us many things. He's made unto us wisdom. But he's also made unto us righteousness. The righteousness of God is put to our account through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And we could talk about the garment of perfect righteousness. And I've got a picture here of a, a dead yo. I've got another little picture here of a lamb with a pelt on being about to be introduced to the mother. And you see, that is what you and I need in Christ. We need to have a new coat, a coat of righteousness that, that's, that's given to us in Christ. And on that basis, then, God accepts us. And not only is God pleased and satisfied, but we also then, in Christ, become happy and content because we are accepted. If a foster you rejects the alien lamb, then the farmer's in difficulty. But he wants it to be accepted. And how does he do it? By skin grafting. And how are we accepted in Christ? Because God imputes to us the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's what I want you to think about today. Here's the first lesson of the gospel in the farmyard. Thank you. You can hear the bell ringing there. Thank you, Bethany. Now, this morning, as we continue with our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians, my text today is in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. It reads as follows, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And I've entitled this message, Understanding Our Spiritual Circumcision in Christ. Now I wonder if you as a car or a van or a lorry driver have ever heard of Spaghetti Junction. Does Spaghetti Junction exist? Yes, it does. It's officially known as Graverly Hill Interchange. It's a famous road junction in the United Kingdom. And it's the most complicated. It was called Spaghetti Junction by a journalist, Roy Smith, in the 1970s. It's known as Junction 6 of the M6 motorway. And it's in the Graverly Hill area of Birmingham. And it has a number of intersection traffic entrances and exits. So it's very easy to get lost. And as I've said, it's the most complicated junction in the UK. Now, Colossians chapter 2, in my opinion, from 9 to 13, is like a spiritual spaghetti junction. Because there's so many entrance points and exit points to the text. Let me explain. Last week, we focused on Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, the theme, understanding the fullness of God in Christ. I only scratched the surface. Thank you for coming and listening, and for those online for listening to the message. We appreciate that. But I did not fully deal with the doctrine of incarnation, as some have rightly pointed out. I didn't deal with the full essential deity of Christ. We mentioned it, we touched on it, it is here, but we only scratched the surface. I didn't deal with the outworking of the believer's complete fullness in Christ. I didn't stress how when we are weak, we are made strong in Christ. I, I didn't teach you the fact that we can do all things through Christ. I didn't deal with the fullness of the grace of God in Christ. What did I do last week? I, I only dealt with one aspect of the sermon. 
So it was like a spiritual journey going in at one entrance, understanding the fullness of God in Christ, and coming out at the exit of that message. Now, the same applies to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. You see, we're coming to one of the most intense theological sections in the book. These verses are like a six-exit entrance roundabout. There's so many ways in, so many ways out. And it's very hard to get round it all at once. So it's very hard to teach you all that's here in one or two sermons. And you see, these verses, especially verses 11 through to 13, have led to so many debates. And so many issues have been flanged up. And in good Ulster terminology, you get somebody coming along and saying, what about me? You see, these verses are so rich. There's so many themes. There's so many avenues that we could travel down. We could spend weeks and months on these verses. Now, I have chosen again this morning, so I want you to understand me, just one overall theme. And the theme is this. Moving on from understanding our fullness of God in Christ, we're thinking about understanding our spiritual union in Christ. And I believe the key here to understand it, if I put it simply so that you can grasp it this morning, and it's this. Ask yourself this fundamental question. What makes a Christian a Christian? And if you think of that, then this text will begin to open up like the flower does to the sun. As I have wrestled with it, prayed over it, sought to study it through commentators, etc. Let me present what I've come up with this morning. First of all, I want you to think of an explanation about our spiritual circumcision in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him also. So, so we're going to pause there. Ask yourself, what does that mean, in whom? Who is the apostle Paul referring to? Who is he thinking about? What person has he got in mind? We'll connect it all the way back to verse 8. How does verse 8 end? And not after Christ. Christ is the subject. Now look at verse 9. For in him, see it's a reference to Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10. And ye are complete in him. That, that's in Christ, which is the head of all principality and power. In whom also. Do you see the connection? It's the same subject. It's Christ. And then look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the Faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. You see, the emphasis here four times is on him. I would put it in capital letters. Who is he? What's he done? What's he like? Well, well it's Christ. You see, the apostle Paul is emphasizing that Christ himself is solely sufficient because we are in union with him in his life, in his death, in his burial, 
and in his resurrection. And because we are in union with him in this way, he gives us power and victory over indwelling sin. And you this morning, if you're in him, need to recognize your spiritual union with Christ. Remember that union. Especially because you're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And you're facing false teachers with their false teaching. Now in verse 11, notice that he mentions the word circumcision. He says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. We'll pause there. The word circumcised and the word circumcision is mentioned 72 times in the Bible. And here's one of the references. Now why mention it? Why now at this point in the letter? Why here at this venture? You see, it's important. It's necessary you understand this. False teachers in Colossae. This is part of the heresy and the error that they were insisting upon. Was that individual people in the church at Colossae received the right of circumcision. In other words, they insisted on the right of circumcision being administered in order to become a true Christian. Remember what I said, what Christian a Christian? They were saying you can't be a true Christian without it. It's great that you profess faith in Christ, but you haven't been circumcised. You need to be circumcised to be a true Christian. And in fact, you can't even be a good, strong, spiritual Christian without the right of circumcision. We can make you a better Christian. All you have to do is have this right of circumcision applied. Now the Apostle Paul is literally replying. He's dealing with that. He's saying to the church there and the believers, don't fall for such lies and deceit. Don't allow these false teachers to take you captive with the idea and the concept that you need to be literally circumcised in your flesh. Why? Look at verse 11. In whom also, you see, the word also means in addition to. In addition to the fact that you are complete in him, you are and were already circumcised. See, that was news to them. You are and were circumcised by a circumcision that far excels the mere right that the false teachers are teaching or, or speaking about. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You don't need to submit to this Jewish rite or ceremony to save you. You don't need to submit to this Jewish rite to make you more spiritual or to become part of a spiritual elite. You are already spiritually circumcised in Christ. You see, I want to emphasize, and we're going to see this more and more as this letter unfolds. A true Christian is not subject or bound to the Old Testament legal system. Neither are we bound to the right of circumcision or spiritual diets or the observance of certain holy days. These do not save you. These do not impart any spiritual good to you? Why is Paul insisting on this? Because Jesus Christ is solely sufficient for your every need. 
All you need is found in him. We were singing there in that lovely hymn, hymn number 70. And we sang it deliberately this morning. My every need he richly will supply. You see, it's all found in him. It's all fulfilled in him. And once you realize that you're in him, and remember this, that you're already circumcised in him, then you're not going to fall for the lie or submit to this rite of Jewish circumcision. So there's the explanation of our spiritual circumcision in Christ. I want you to think, secondly, of the essence of our spiritual circumcision in Christ. Now, what is the Apostle Paul talking about? He uses the words circumcised and circumcision, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And he mentions at the end the circumcision of Christ. Now, what do you mean, Paul? We're circumcised in Christ, but what are you talking about? Now, I want you to think of the nature of this circumcision, because this is what it is. What is circumcision? You see, circumcision is a mere outward physical sign. Some people say it's, that's all it is. It's nothing more. A mere physical outward sign. But it's not. It is a mere physical outward sign, but it's more, it's an outward physical sign that points to something more. It points to an inward reality, a spiritual reality. See, remember in the Old Testament, God ordained the removal of the male foreskin as a sign of his covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. It's an outward sign. An outward sign that points to an inward reality. And you see, that's what the Jews down the years forgot. They held the sign outwardly. They held it proudly. They, they held it uh, tenaciously. They, they fought over it. I've got the sign. And they felt superior. And they felt better than the Gentiles. And now these false teachers were emphasizing in Colossae the outward sign on its own, by itself. You needed to get saved. You needed to be made more spiritual. No. Why? Because what does the sign point to? It points to an inward reality. The sign points to the substance. And what is that inward reality? What is that substance? It's the inner circumcision of the heart to God. Look at these couple of references this morning. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and in the verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. I'm just going to read the text. I'm not going to seek to explain it. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. For online, the words will come up on the screen. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart. Notice who the agent is. And the heart of thy seed. To love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. And with all thy soul. That thou mayest live. Remember what I said. 
The word circumcision is mentioned 32 times and the word circumcised 40 times in the Bible, making 72. Circumcise thine heart. See, here's the inward reality behind the outward ritual. And in union with Christ, by the power of regeneration, by the power of the new birth, God in Christ infuses new life into the soul of the penitent believing sinner so that that penitent believing sinner can, by the power of God, die unto sin, put off one's sinful ways in order that we can love and obey him. If we ask the question this morning, what is the greatest relationship of all time? Husband and wife, parents and children, Friend to friend? No. What one relationship supersedes all other relationships? So all other relationships pale into the shadows in comparison to this one. All other relationships are surpassed by this one. That's the relationship to God. The greatest knowledge in the world, young people, is the knowledge of God. And you want to think of God's intention. God's interest, God's objective, God's plan and purpose for every true believer is to know and enjoy and experience a full, complete, and satisfactory Christian life in Christ, a life of power and victory. Don't let the false teachers take you captive in a way that's not after Christ. Get a sight of all that you have in Christ. Get a sight of all that Christ has done for you. Get a sight of the fact that you're in Christ. And one of the things he has provided is a deep, loving, true, lasting relationship that far surpasses anything ever imagined or have ever experienced before. You see, this spiritual circumcision I'm talking about is one that's made without hands. In other words, there's no human agency. It's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration. It's an inward act. It's a spiritual act. Turn over there to Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, we read the words in verse 28. Underline these words because they're very important. The Apostle Paul says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. See, that's a person who's received the right of circumcision. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You see, we could compare this morning physical circumcision. What does it involve? Minor surgery with a knife, cuts off the foreskin. It's something that's manual. It's a manual operation. It's something that's outward. And then compare that with spiritual circumcision. Here's the inward reality of it. It's a work of God, the Holy Spirit, in the new birth, where, where the heart is circumcised, where, where, where the individual is brought into union with God in Christ. You see, there's a, a wonderful spiritual application to think about. Not only the nature of it, but think of the need of it very quickly. You see, a mere physical sign, 
A mere physical operation on a body could never convey spiritual grace. In other words, the mere physical sign being done to a body is not something that's linked to, indispensable with, or necessary for salvation. For salvation, you need a spiritual work. Remember Ephesians 2 and 1 said to the children, And ye hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And if you're dead in trespasses and sins, you can't make yourself alive to God. You can never bring yourself into union with Christ. You have to be put into him. You have to be placed in him. You you can't bring yourself into a loving relationship with God. You can't bring yourself to be obedient in that relationship to God. Why? Because we're born sinners. We're dead in trespasses and we're guilty, hell-deserving sinners. If you turn over there to a couple of other references, think of the words in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 4, and in the verse 4, listen to these words in Jeremiah 4 and 4. Again, the words will come up on the screen. Jeremiah the prophet said this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn, that none can quench it because of the evils of your doing. Let's come to chapter 6 and verse 10. Here's another reference. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. And if we add in the words of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 7, we read there, In that ye have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when ye offer my bread, the fat and the blood, And they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations. You see, people today, all over the world, the UK, Western countries, United States of America, many are depending on a ritual to save them. You you think of baptism. I remember a man, Coleraine, I give a tract to on three separate occasions in three separate streets and three separate times when I was out in outreach on one occasion. The last time I offered them the track, I told them that. And I asked him, was he born again? And he said he was. I asked him when. And he said he was born again when he was baptized as a child. You see, in the act of baptism, there are those that believe that the water and the blood and the Holy Spirit somehow intermingle and meet. Roman Catholicism calls it ex opera operato. By virtue of the act. Submit to the act. Because the act will save you. The act will make you spiritual and acceptable to God. The act will wash away your sin. It's not true. It's a lie. Because the act doesn't save you. The act doesn't make you more spiritual. The act doesn't make you acceptable to God. See, that's Paul's point. That's why they needed it. They've already experienced a spiritual circumcision through union with Christ. They're, they're alive to God. They've been born again. They have new life in him. They don't need physical circumcision. Why? Because it doesn't even convey the grace of God. 
Where is the fullness of the grace of God? It's in Christ. Over there in John, remember what we read in John chapter 1 uh, and in the uh, verse uh, 15. The uh, apostle John writes this. He, he says, verse 16, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Can we get the picture there? The grace of God is in Christ alone, not, not in an act, not in a ritual. And more so, it says a circumcision made without hands. In other words, a divine hand was at work. A spiritual agent was performing this. A supernatural hand. No human agency was involved. Not even an angel. Not even a pastor. Not even a priest. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus taught? Listen to these words. He came unto his own and his own received them not. But as many as received him. To them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name, which were born. How were they born? Not of blood, not by natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh. They weren't willing themselves to be born, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, do you see that? The individual realizing the horror of his sin. Realizing the guilt and punishment of sin. Realizing the horror of danger he's in because the wages of sin is death. And he's thinking to himself, what can I do? I need to be changed. I know what I'll do. I'll make myself religious. I'll make myself better. I'll go to church. I'll do this and that. The church says, I need this right. Then I'll accept that. I'll do this thing. Then I'll do it. See, here's the Lord Jesus. You can't inherit this from your parents. You, you can't decide for yourself because you have no power to perfect it. You, you can't depend on another for they have no power by themselves. No minister, no, no priest, no friend. You need to be born of God. And it's only in Christ. And you see, even our coming to Christ and our believing in Christ, and our repenting before Christ, and our cry for mercy. You see, it's not merely us that has done that. God, by his grace and power, is at work in us. He's made us alive to him. And, and through that, we cry to God. You think of a pile of dirt. That dirt doesn't come to life, even though God has formed a body. And in Genesis 2, 17, that's a picture of the sinner under the curse of God. And what does he need? He needs, he needs the infusion of life. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's the essence. Notice quickly and thirdly the extent of our spiritual circumcision in Christ. It says in our text, if you go back to Colossians chapter 2, and look with me there at what it says, in whom also ye were circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. We'll pause there. You see, once you're born again and you're regenerated by the power of the Spirit, you now have a new love in your life. You now have a new principle of holiness. You now have a new desire. And you realize because you've been shut up to sovereign mercy and free grace, in Christ you're a new person. Remember the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's 
a new creature, old things have passed away and all things have become new. There's a hatred for sin. Here's the extent of it. There's a putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, the sins that we love. The secret sins, the splendid sins, the scandalous sins. You see, it's a reference to unrenewed sinful human nature. It's a reference to a mortal body by which we relate to the material world. And in that body, there's sensuality and there's scandal and, and there, there, there's sinfulness and silliness. And we, we live according to our own sinful nature. And what do we need? We need a new nature. And how do we get a new nature? You get it in Christ. In our union with Christ. Here's the true extent. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Not just certain sins. That is true. But more, the, the whole body of sin is broken. The, the power of sin in the material body is broken. It's no longer central. It's no longer dominating the individual. Once we get a grasp of our union with Christ in this act of regeneration, God does something to you and in you. The old man is crucified. The body of sin is being destroyed. The new man emerges. The, the old man is put to death. And if you think of crucifixion, it was a slow death. It's not that the body of sin is completely eradicated. It means that the body of sin has been weakened and we're dying to it. It's been putting it off. It's, it's an ongoing thing. Think of your life before you were converted to Christ, before you were born again. You had no interest in the things of God. You had no love for God or Christ. You had no desire to obey him. You did your own thing on the Sabbath day. But now you're in Christ. Now you're converted. And you hate sin. And you're not running to the party scene. You're not in taking booze or smoking fags or partaking of the drug culture. There's been a radical change. Why? Because it's an inward change that's seen outwardly. A change in your heart and mind. A real change. You can sense it. You can see it. Others can see it. And you can say, God did this for me. That's the extent. Notice, lastly, the experience of spiritual circumcision in Christ. High. Here's the answer. By the circumcision of Christ. Do you know that when the Lord Jesus was an infant, that he was literally and physically circumcised? Turn over there to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. We'll finish with this thought. Luke chapter 2, and look with me at verse 21. This is an important point. Let's hear the word of God. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So I want you to think of this. By the circumcision of Christ. For it's alluded to here. A literal physical circumcision. And it was a sign. I believe the Lord Jesus of course. Was submitting himself to fulfill the law. But this sign. Which was like a picture. Pointed from. He was a child at eight days in the manger. To the cross. I want you to think of Christ. As an eight year old our eight-day-old baby laid on the table, exposed to nakedness in public view, the priest bearing the knife, the act of circumcision takes place, blood is shed. 
that the foreskin is cut off. It's a great foreshadowing. It's, it's a prefigurement from the cradle to Calvary. Because when he was 33, he was laid in the tree. He was exposed to nakedness. The nails were driven into his hands and feet. The crown of thorns adorned his brow. His back was lashed. It was running red with blood. As he died in the tree, there was a spear put into his side. And his flesh was torn and cut. But even there, he was given a name. Superscription. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And then he was presented to the Father. As a child, he was presented to the Lord. Now, his body has been presented. He's presenting it himself. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world of lost sinners to himself. You've got to think of the violent nature of Christ's death. You've got to think of the violent nature of Christ's suffering, the violent nature of his pain, and yet he had no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. He's the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in the verse um, 22, it says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Verse 24, 1 Peter 2, who his own self bear our sins in his own body in the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. And when you think of him dying on the tree, we died in him. Remember, we are alive in him. And because he died unto sin once for all, we can live unto righteousness. Because the righteousness of God in Christ is put to our account. And this morning, here's the experience of this suffering, this spiritual circumcision. It's by the circumcision of Christ. He is a Savior who suffered for us. He's the Savior who saves us. He's the Savior who supplies our need and sanctifies us. I trust this morning we'll have a better understanding of our spiritual Circumcision in Christ. Understand the explanation. When does a Christian become a Christian? I want you to think of the essence of it. I want you to think of the extent of it. Here's how far reaching it is. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. How? Because we're in union with Christ by the circumcision of Christ. His cradle, what happened there, is a foreshadowing of what he did on the cross. Now next week we'll open it up a little bit more in the will of God. And we'll see further. No, we'll not next week. Because next week is Mother's Day. Isn't that right? Yes, somebody's nodding. Right. We'll have a Mother's Day message for next week.